the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I don't know if it's just the older I get, the faster time goes, but it seems like I just said goodbye on Friday, and it's already a brand new week as we get a little bit closer to Christmas, the day we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think most of you know that Jesus almost certainly wasn't born on December 25th. But as we approach Christmas, we think about his birthday celebration And we're the ones who get all of the gifts. It's a time to really, really and truly reflect and be grateful on what the Lord has done. So uh, to that end, we want to invite you on Friday night to our children's Christmas play. Actually, it's kids from from the the toddlers all the way up to high schoolers. Uh, Friday night at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center in Converse, Texas. Uh, 6.30, it's free, it'll cost you nothing. I promise you there is not a better show that you're going to find anywhere in San Antonio uh, this coming Friday. I'll mention it for the rest of the week just to give you a heads up, but we'd love to see you there. Um, We're grateful. Um, We've got uh, open phone lines. We'd love your calls and questions. Let me give you the phone numbers, and we'll get right to the questions that have been sent in. 210-340-9585 for your live calls. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. And you can also send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Um, your questions will get to us there as well. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just one button. Call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend in church. We did. Um, you know, people are starting to leave and others are starting to visit for families. And it's a great thing. I do want to give you all a wonderful update. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your prayers. We asked for prayer uh, Friday for and we've been asking for prayer over the months um, for Raina Wilson, her and her husband, Carl. Uh, just lovely people in our church. We've fallen in love with them. They've been here for a lot of years now. And she has a very, very aggressive form of cancer. And uh, she underwent 16 hours or so worth of surgery on Friday, a surgery that they didn't think that they would... Uh, uh, she, there wasn't a great hope that she would be able to take the surgery and survive, but it was absolutely necessary. Not only did she survive it, uh, they were going to take out other body parts that they were sure were going to be infected by the cancer, and there just wasn't any cancer. Uh, There was necrotic tissue. They removed all of that. It was a very tricky and and, uh, long, long, long ordeal. Uh, But she's doing really, really, really well, and we so appreciate it. She's going to be in the hospital still for a couple of weeks. But we would really ask you to keep praying for uh, Raina Wilson. Um, boy, we just 
seeing the Lord do a miracle. I had one lady who was there in the waiting room during the, the surgery, and every time the doctors would come out, she, she said it was almost like we were sitting inside this little bubble, and every time the doctor came out, there was a miracle happening in that little bubble. So God heard our prayers. He's hearing your prayers. So please keep uh, Carl and Raina in your prayers for a complete recovery. Uh, I'm just so grateful to God for sparing us the sorrow that we were afraid of. Doctors were absolutely amazed, absolutely amazed. Hey, in the introduction, I also forgot to notice or to, to mention that tonight, of course, is our last uh, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies through the Christmas holidays. We'll pick them up again uh, in the middle of January. Uh, but uh, the ladies, Linda McMillan, will be teaching tonight. Um, Pastor Ken be teaching the men. Chris Sanchez, the junior high school age kids. And Pastor Nelly will be doing the high school age youth. So um, last time before Christmas, come and enjoy it. You can come with the whole family. There's some place for everybody to go. 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 340-9585. Let me get to the questions. I didn't think I was going to get this question, but here it is. It's anonymous. Pastor Ron, did you notice there was a transgender woman in the Miss Universe contest last night? Uh, I only did because uh, we, we just were watching football and the Spurs and, and other things. So, Or not the Spurs last night. We were watching football and something else. And um, um, uh, on my news feed this morning when I got up it was their transgender woman from Spain. Now think about this, with all the beautiful women in Spain they chose a man to represent Spain in the Miss Universe contest. Now Anonymous, I'm not going to go off here, but um, is there any doubt that we're near the end? Jesus has got to be ready to return. We've lost our mind. We've lost our way. We live in a time where we are more guilty than even Israel was when Je- when Jesus said to them through Isaiah the prophet that you call good evil and evil good. You drag your sin, you parade your sin through the city streets with cords of deceit. And truly, Anonymous, we've lost the ability to be embarrassed or ashamed. We've lost the will to blush at sin. It's just as though anything and everything is okay. So, um, when I mentioned this to Paula this morning after seeing it on my news feed, um, I'm sad to say that it's getting to the place where nothing like this even surprises us anymore. So, yeah, we noticed it's going to be in our faces. And believe me, the people, the activists are going to be militant. Uh, we need to be men and women walking in the power of God's spirit. Here is a question from Jeremy. He wants to know, is the Septuagint a reliable translation? Um, Jeremy, yes, it is. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. It dates back, I think, to about 185, 189 B.C. Um, We know it's reliable because the Apostle Paul quoted it often. Jesus Jesus quoted it. It was probably the uh, translation that most of the New Testament prophets, those who are quoted in their Bibles, it's the one that they used rather than than the Hebrew translations. In the synagogue, of course, it would have been um, uh, in Hebrew language. But um, the the scriptures that were used in the day um, came from the Septuagint. That's why sometimes you'll be following along with some of Paul's statements and it's slightly different than what your Hebrew text says uh, in your in your Old Testament. Uh, it's because he's quoting the Septuagint. So it's really, really a good translation and uh, perhaps uh, the most reliable manuscript that we have uh, of the of the Old Testament. Here is a question from Rhonda. She wants to know what has to happen for revival to occur. Um, Rhonda, you know, that's a hard question to ask. I can give you uh, um, uh, answers, but uh, the the real issue here is revivals come uh, according to the will of God. They come very infrequently. They're few and far between. Um, It's a sovereign move of God's Spirit, and we can never tell when, where, or how. 
Um, one of the great things you might do, Ron, is pick up some literature and study the history of revivals. It is unbelievably inspiring reading. Um, when I was first saved, I would read about uh, revivals. I'd get so excited. All I could do, Lord, we want revival. We want revival. Um, the problem with our sort of revival mentality in the church today, Rhonda, is that um, when we look at revival, we look outside of ourselves. We look at, at the people out there. We look at the pain in the world. We look at the, the sin in the world. Uh, we look at the way people respond to or reject completely our Jesus. And uh, we, we keep thinking that we need a revival for, for those people to be revived. And if a revival is going to happen, Rhonda, what needs to happen is the church of Jesus Christ needs to be re- revived. Let me also say, and I'm going to make up my own word here, but it also, the church also needs to be rebibled because we've lost the, the, the impact of a, of, a, of a Bible that is the word of God. Um, the church judgment begins at the house of God. If there's going to be a revival, um, every new, every revival means there's going to be a multitude of new believers. They've got to have a place to go that's committed and submitted to Jesus. So the church needs a return to personal holiness. The church needs a return to teaching the scriptures, just teaching the scriptures. And until and unless that happens, the church simply isn't going to be able to impact the world outside. Revival uh, is God's spirit moving, but using the, the, the people of God, the church of God, to minister to those people who are being moved by the spirit of God. And we simply don't have enough people committed to personal holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what the angels, the privileged angels, were saying around the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And unless we are focused on personal holiness, unless we're willing to repent, I had a great story just revealed to me uh, uh, just before we went on the air here. Uh, there was a, a guy in our church. He, he, he's teaching here at the school. And he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, you got him in. I got a funny story to tell you. And it was yesterday during the services when I was giving an invitation. And he said it was behind him. Everybody, they were keeping their eyes closed and they were praying. So they weren't poking into other people's business. But they could hear the conversation behind them. They weren't trying to, but they could hear it. And the wife was saying to the husband, I have to go. I need to go up there. And he says, no, don't go. And she waited a couple of minutes. And she said, I really have to go up there. And he says, no, if you go up there, I'm going to have to go. And so she sat for another minute. And then finally she goes, I'm going. And she got up out of the chair. And while he was just sitting there behind the people in our church, the Lord moved on my heart, and I said, you know, the, the Lord is waiting for someone. He's dealing with you on an issue. This is your time. I'll wait another 30 seconds or so, but this is the time that the Lord is ministering to your heart. And the guy who was telling me the story says he could hear behind him the guy go, ah, and he got up and came forward as well. Um... That's, Rhonda, what has to happen. We have to be revived personally and individually. And that's not going to happen apart from those two things. First, a revival. We need to return to the Word of God. Not stories about the Word. But the Word itself. We've got to believe it. But then we've got to own it. We've got to own our own sin. Until we do. I wouldn't expect a revival to happen. One more thought, Rhonda, on revival. And I got in trouble. When I, I don't mean I got in trouble, really, but, but I had some people get mad at me when I said this the last time on this radio program. If there is going to be another revival in this country, it's going to happen within a group that you wouldn't imagine a revival could happen. I personally think, now this is just me praying and I'm not saying thus saith the Lord or anything like that. But I personally think that if a revival is going to break out in this country, it's going to break out in the LGBTQ population. 
A listener got so angry. How could you say that they're not even saved? God doesn't want them in heaven. Yeah, he does. And let me tell you something else, that wherever they are in their life right now, they are no farther from God than I was when he reached down and picked me up out of a public street in Upland, California, 28 years ago, or nearly 28 years ago. So it's very important that we pray for the disenfranchised, the least likely. That's where revival always happens. Last revival, Rhonda, in our country, or in the world, actually, was the Jesus movement uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and nobody believed hippies could be saved. And yet that's exactly what happened. Great, great, great information out there on revivals. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Angela. She says, doesn't the Bible teach that churches should be in homes instead of expensive buildings? Um, no, Angela, the Bible doesn't teach. You know, what the Bible is doing uh, in the book of Acts is reporting. When Paul was writing letters to churches, churches met in homes uh, because culturally that's what they had available. They didn't have uh, big buildings. They didn't have uh, places where thousands of people could gather so no, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible points out that believers in the first century, they took what they had. There's another dynamic, Angela, that uh, I think is sort of a, a, a forerunner of, of the way we meet in big buildings now. Uh, in the book of Acts, um, you know, the church initially was entirely Jewish. Um, God's Spirit was moving on Jews. 5,000 will get saved the first day, or 3,000 the first day, another 5,000 uh, a day and a half later. Uh, and then as they would take the word out, people were getting saved in droves. And in a Jewish culture, the people that gave their hearts to Jesus Christ would be disowned by their families. They couldn't go to, to, to synagogue or to temple. Um, they couldn't make a living because the, the, the commerce was literally in the outer courts of the temple. So, I mean, they were really all on their own. They had only Jesus to depend on. And so they would gather together. It'd be sort of what we would imagine to be tent cities because they had no place else to turn. And so there was constant fellowship. Um, but homes were all they had. Um, church buildings in our culture and a necessity uh, because there's got to be a, some place that a lot of people can meet together. and um, So there's nothing wrong with the church building. Uh, there's still nothing wrong with the church home, or a home church, I should say. Um, but if you're going to get a lot of people together, you need a lot of space. Boy, do we need a lot of space. So, Angela, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question, another anonymous one. Uh, the Bible talks about taking care of widows, but I don't see any churches doing that. Why is that? Um, and then um, I guess it's a she. She says, I am a widow and could use some help. Um, you know, Anonymous, most of the time, um, if people in a church uh, are ignored by the church, it's because the church doesn't know of their need. If you are a widow in need, and yes, churches should care for godly widows. Paul says a woman, a widow must be over 60 years of old. She must be committed to the service of the church. Uh, I, I don't think, I think those are more cultural requirements um, than, than to be taken literally. Uh, but here in our church, if we have a, a, a woman whose husband uh, dies suddenly and she's left alone, uh, she's part of our family, and we want to take care of her. But we have others who move into town. We don't know what their situation is. We don't know what their need is. And I really like to believe the best of the body of Christ. Uh, I really believe that if a genuine need was known, that need would be cared for. So go to your pastor and tell him what you're struggling with. Ask him the question in exactly the way that you asked me and give him the chance to respond. 
let me explain my own personal thought. I believe with all of my heart that single moms in our culture are the, the New Testament version in the 21st century of the Old Testament widows and orphans that were commanded to care for. Um, I believe it's the church's responsibility to step up and help single moms and sometimes single dads. Help them with groceries, help them with rent, um, help them with jobs if we're able to do that. Help them with babysitting. I mean, there's uh, house cleaning. There's all kinds of ways that we can help. And I think you're going to find, Anonymous, that most churches are looking for opportunities to serve their body. I know we are here at Calvary Chapel, and probably so too is the church that you're attending. So go to your pastor. Let him know that you're a widow, that you've got some difficulties, some some circumstances that you'd like to talk to him about, and give them a chance to respond. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here is a question from Jonathan. He says, I think I heard you say last week that God puts tests and trials in our lives to test us to find out what's in our heart. Is that right? If it is, God already knows what's in our heart. So it doesn't make sense that God would force trials on us. Um, Jonathan, I did say that, and that might have been two weeks ago because this question has been here for a week, but um, trials have a distinct purpose in our lives. God tested Israel. God tested Abraham. Think about Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. God tests all of us. Not because he doesn't know what's in our heart, but that so what's in our heart can be revealed to us. You know, when everything's going fine in my life, I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to breeze right through that trial. There's going to be no problem at all. Um, the, the difficulty with that, of course, is that when the trial comes, it all changes. We get afraid and we look at circumstances. So God shows us our heart. Trials make us more like Jesus. Trials draw us closer to him in terms of having to hold on to him, depend on him rather than depend on people or other circumstances. So, yeah, God puts trials in our lives because we need them. Suffering. Paul says, writing to the Romans in chapter 5, all the great things that suffering produces that we would say trials produce. Patience, perseverance, godly character. Jesus suffered. We are not exempt from suffering. And so trials are important for us, and we need to embrace trials. Whenever I say that, I, I, I can hear people shaking their heads in frustration. I didn't say enjoy the trial. No trial seems pleasant. But to embrace the trial, because Jesus will be in the trial with us, and then when we're through the trial, we're going to be more like Jesus than we were before the trial. Not only that, but we're going to be able then to provide comfort in the body to people who need it with the comfort that we've received from God, we're going to be able to go to somebody and say, you know what, I know what you're going through is hard. I know it seems impossible. But let me tell you what God did for me. And we can encourage, we can exhort, we can be an example of the faithfulness of God. So trials, we need them, we don't like them. But they're really, really good for us. And God loves us so much that sometimes he walks us right into trials. Now, I want to be clear, not every trial is designed by God, but many of them are. A lot of our trials are just sort of the the, the messes that we make. But when we're in a trial, we really learn what level our faith is at. We really learn 
who Jesus is. So he's not forcing trials. Paul says that suffering would be granted to us, and the idea there is as a gift from God. We don't like it, but that's the way it is. So Jonathan, I hope that helps answer your question. 340-9585 for your live calls. I think we are close. We're one minute, so let me see if I've got a quick quick. Here's a quick one I can do. Uh, Mark says in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said to anoint our head with oil when we fast. Why? Uh, Mark, uh, what he's saying is don't, don't look like you're suffering. Don't fast for show. But fast, and he's talking to Jews, and this is a Jewish construct of fasting. Uh, don't do it so everybody knows how spiritual you are. Do it instead so that you can draw nearer to the Lord. I'll talk a little bit more about fasting on the other side of the break. You can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program we'd love your live calls and questions 340-9585 remember you can also email us your questions by emailing questions at calvary sa.com. Mark, I want to do one more, uh, make one more comment on your question about fasting. Um, Jesus wasn't talking to us. Now, one of the hermeneutics, I spoke about this in my message yesterday in a different context, um, but, but, but if we're going to study our Bibles, we have to know to whom he was talking. When Jesus said to anoint their heads with oil when they fast, he's not talking to you and he's not talking to me. He's talking to the religious leaders who are making a, a hypocritical show of their faith. And what they're doing is they're fasting and they wouldn't wash their face and they, their clothes would be sort of uh, uh, wrinkly and dirty. And somebody say, are you okay? Yeah, we're just fasting. You know, we're trying to get close to God, those kind of things. But it's a, it's a very, Jew, Jesus' ministry was Jewish and, and it's a very Jewish context. So the idea of fasting isn't for you and me to make ourselves hungry so God will answer our prayers just so that God will do something. What he's saying is, um, whatever you're doing to honor the Lord, do it privately. You know God knows nobody else needs to know. If you want to know what fasting is for, read Isaiah chapter 58. It is the authoritative passage of Scripture on fasting. Uh, It doesn't apply to us as New Testament Christians, but the principles do. And too often we use fasting as leverage. Okay, God, I'm going to really be hungry, so you have to tell me what I want to know. Um, that's to miss the whole point of fasting altogether. So he's just saying, it's, it'd be like telling you, you know, if you're really going to be laboring in prayer or something, um, act normal. You know, no suffering for Jesus kind of thing. So I hope that helps. Here is a question that came in from our mobile app anonymously. Uh, what is your opinion about the pastor who bought his wife a Lamborghini? He said it wasn't a pastor who bought the car, it was the husband. Should there be a disconnect between the role of a pastor and that of a husband? I absolutely love the second part of your question. Um, I, I deal with this with pastors all the time. Um, so my opinion, I have no opinion about the pastor who bought his wife a Lamborghini. Uh, I saw the article, every time a Christian does something like this, the media makes a big deal about it. The car cost in excess of $200,000. Uh, I am mortified that a, a man who serves the Lord would have $200,000 to spend uh, for a car. But uh, on the other hand, uh, this particular pastor is uh, a, a church plant out of uh, Lakewood Church in, in, in Houston, Joel Osteen's church. And, you know, doctrine is important. 
anonymous because we live what we believe. And the Osteen group is a group that believes God wants you to have your best life now, that he wants you to have the best this world has to offer now, uh, almost as though we're trying to make earth heaven instead of understanding that this is never going to be our home, that our job here is to serve the Lord uh, in humility. But those pastors that come out of a prosperity tradition, it is a false tradition, but nonetheless, it's a popular one. That's why 20,000 people go to Joel Steen's church every weekend. Um, so his congregation, this pastor, uh, his congregation will see his wife driving around a Lamborghini, and they'll just think, well, see, that's God blessing them. And it's just not the case. So um, he's going to stand before Jesus and explain that. Um, I'm not, and as long as I'm not, um, I don't have to worry about it. But let me talk about the other part, because I think this is really an important question. Is there a disconnect between the role of a pastor and that of a husband in the home of a pastor? And and I maintain steadfastly that there isn't. Those of you who listen to the program on Thursdays, you know, Paula calls me pastor on about half the time. Now, I don't make her do that. So don't think I'm you call me pastor on. It's not that at all. Um, but I am both Paula's husband and her pastor. And not for one minute of any day do I stop being either. I've had a lot of pastors say, and I've actually heard this taught in, in, in marriage conferences by pastors to other pastors. You know, at home you're just your wife's husband. And that's never the case. That's never the case. As pastors... We don't get to act one way at home and another way at church. Um, Our wife is a member of our flock, a prized, treasured, cherished member of our flock. And so it's our job to rightly represent the Lord, but it's our job to make her feel beautiful and loved and precious. And you do that as a husband and as a pastor. And when we forget that, usually that's when our homes turn into something other than a godly example of a husband and wife in Christ. So Paula, I hope, is happy that I'm her pastor and happy that I'm her husband. But she knows she's stuck with both because there's just not going to be any other alternative. Here's a question from Avery. I don't know whether that's a male or a female. Uh, Why are there so many different opinions about Jesus, who he is, or even how to find him? Avery, do you remember uh, one of my favorite Bible studies? We we only break verse-by-verse studies here at Calvary Chapel three times a year. Uh, We do it uh, for Christmas. We do it for Easter. We're going to teach the stories. The stories need to be told and retold over and over and over. Uh, And we do it the, the Sunday before Easter. Uh, for what we call Palm Sunday, um, Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, you remember in that huge crowd in Jerusalem, all the differing opinions, people were arguing, who do you think it is? They knew this was the day that the Christ was going to, to appear. The exact day it was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. The crowds were huge because this was the day they'd been waiting for for a very long time. And yet when Jesus appeared, by the way, riding on a donkey as prophesied by Malachi, had he come in on a horse, had he come in walking, it wouldn't have been him. He fulfilled the prophecy. They still rejected him. And the reason they rejected him is the same reason that people have different opinions about Jesus now. The real Jesus isn't enough. I got a heartbreaking email from a woman who used to come to our church today. And um, she's chasing her image of God, and, uh, and and she's asking my opinion. And I withdrew from this conversation a long time ago because she's really not listening. But my question is always the same one. Why isn't the real Jesus enough? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus is revealed to us on every page of Scripture as we turn. 
Why isn't he enough in that crowd on Triumphal Entry Sunday? There were some who knew it was him and were content to follow. But the large crowd rejected him because they didn't like his message. They wanted him to be who they expected him to be, the one who would deliver them from Roman rule. In spite of the miracles that he'd done, in spite of the fact that he showed up exactly the right time fulfilling all of the prophecies. And they still rejected him. In fact, less than a full week later, they're crying out, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. So you see, Avery, nothing has changed in these 2,000 some odd years. People don't want a Jesus who tells them that you can't sin. People don't want a Jesus who won't let them do what they want to do. A Jesus who makes plans. Ephesians 2.10 says the plans that he made before the foundation of the earth, plans that we would walk in them in that perfect will of God. And people want a Jesus who gives them life insurance of heaven but without any requirement at all for life here on earth. And as long as that's the case, Avery, people are going to keep making Jesus in their image instead of understanding that we were made in his image. So the differing opinions have nothing to do with anything that God did. But it reflects who we really and truly are. You know, Avery, every Sunday we give invitations here. Every every time we do Bible study here, we give invitations. But Sunday when the larger crowds are here and we know there's unbelievers here and we know there are some believers here who are trying to manipulate Jesus to do what they want him to do, I want to scream out sometimes, what's wrong with the real Jesus? And it sounds so spiritual, doesn't it, when somebody says, yeah, but how do we know the real Jesus? I'm on a journey to find him. All you have to do is journey into your Bibles, into the pages of Scripture. Right after the first of the year, uh, our Friday night studies are going to be uh, in uh, the New Testament book of Hebrews. And Hebrews simply presents Jesus in all his superiority, in all of his glory. And yet even the audience to whom Paul wrote Hebrews is falling away. Why? Because things got hard. Things aren't as they expected. So that's why there are so many different opinions about Jesus. Unfortunately, Avery, it shouldn't be that way. Here is a question from Mark. He said, can you explain what being in eternity is going to be like? Mark, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Obviously, we don't know what heaven is going to be like. But we're not going to be in a place called eternity. We're going to be with Jesus forever. And we refer to that, refer to that as, as eternity. But eternity is not a place Eternity is a promise because I gave my heart to Jesus Christ nearly 28 years ago. I get to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. So I can explain in in that regard that being with Jesus forever is going to be wonderful. I'm going to have a body like his, a glorified, resurrected body, a body that can be one place and instantly be in another, a body that can walk through walls. A body where there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be only glory. I I know it's going to be great. Paul says that our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us or literally to us. God will do more than we can ask or imagine. We just don't know what that is. I can tell you, Mark, it's not going to be boring. I can tell you we're going to learn uh, constantly. I can tell you that we're going to love 
more purely than we can possibly imagine. We're going to work. There's going to be ministry in the millennial reign. Some form of ministry that we don't have any details. There's going to be ministry in heaven. We're not going to be idle. We're not going to float around on a on a cloud. We're not going to become an angel. What we are going to do is be with Jesus every day. A fact that Peter calls the goal of our salvation. And Mark, when I get questions like the first one today, did I hear about the transgender man uh, in the Miss Universe contest? Um, it can't happen soon enough for me. Wanda says, Pastor Ron, why should we pray about things if God already knows what he's going to do? Uh, Wanda, we pray for a couple of reasons. One, we pray because he said so. Now, see, when I get a question like this, it sort of shines a light on your motive for praying. If I'm praying to get God to do what I want, I'm missing the whole point of prayer. That's never the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to get me to want what God wants for me. And when I talk to Jesus, I become more like him. When I spend time with him and learn about him in his word, we actually share the same heart. And prayer is just about talking to Jesus. It's not about giving him a laundry list of things to do. We also know in a, in a way that's completely unexplainable that prayer changes the mind of God. Now, when that's the case, like it was with Moses, it's so that we would agree with God's mind. God does that so that we will be used by him to accomplish his will. But we pray. I opened the program today talking about Irena, who is going through such a difficult time. And by the way, the husband is suffering as much as she is, believe me. Why would we pray if God already knows what's going to happen? Because there's a dynamic that says God hears the hearts and the prayers of his people and answers. When we get to heaven and we see all of the prayers that have been answered. I'd also add, Wanda, when we see the prayers that he didn't answer that turned out the best for us. We are going to be so very, very grateful. So we pray because we want to talk to him. We pray because he said to pray. We pray because God loves to bless his people. Just make sure your motives are right. If you ask with the wrong motives, then those are prayers that aren't going to be answered. But take your focus off praying for things or for certain results and instead focus on just talking to your Jesus. That will really change everything because most of all, it will change you. Uh, I guess this isn't a related question um, on purpose, but I guess it's sort of related. This is a question from Christian. He says, the Bible says we reap what we sow, so if I give money, God will give me money. Is that right? Uh, Christian, you don't understand it at all. We reap what we sow, but we're only sowing if we're sowing with the right heart. And 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 I apologize to you, Christian, uh, for... The, the the messages, these mixed messages go out over pulpits in this country and over the Internet, and over TV stations and radio stations. Because we make it sound like we've got God all figured out. You know, you give to me, God will God will bless you. Um, if our motive for giving to God is to get blessed by God, isn't it true that we're denying the blessings that we've already received by God from God? I mean, when I got saved, I was close to hell. 
I don't need to be grateful for anything more than that. So if you give money to God, Christian, to get money back, then you don't understand God at all, nor do you understand your responsibility to him. As New Testament Christians, the reason we give money to God is because all of our money is his. Same thing is true with our talent. Same thing is true with our time. All that we have comes from him and belongs to him. Our responsibility is just to offer it to him. Everything. Not 10% of what we have, but 100% of what we have. And we do it because we're grateful. We do it because he first gave to us everything that he had. I tell our church all the time, Christian, that God emptied the, the vault of heaven for us. How could he give us anything more? And yet still we persist in this pernicious teaching it says, oh, no, no, you just give to me. That's God will then bless you tenfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. That's to miss the point altogether. So you give God everything you are. And you watch and see how rich you are. And I don't mean rich financially. I mean how rich you are in heart and in life. The related question beneath this one was, if God has everything, why does he want 10% from me? And this one was anonymous. Uh, anonymous, he doesn't want 10% from you. I just said in the answer to Christian, he wants 100% from you. If your money belongs to him, you're just holding it. It's not faithful at all to keep it. Now, he's going to let you keep most of the money you have. But he wants everything from you. You know, Anonymous, of all the things that God has, you and I, we're the most precious. He has us, he loves us. He provides for us. He directs our steps. So please don't make your relationship with God about money. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, the word is hilarious. We're not to give under compulsion. If you think God wants 10% of my money, don't give him anything. There's no reward for that. It's very important you get your heart right with this. I guess that's enough of that. Here is a question from Jonathan. He says, is Seventh-day Adventism a cult? Um, Jonathan, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Uh, at its best, Seventh-day Adventism is very legalistic, um, they have cult-like practices and observances, um, but there are plenty of Seventh-day Adventists who, who understand the Bible, although though their understanding is wrong, their understanding of the Word is, is the basis that uh, they make the laws and the, the rules that they follow, and they're missing out and they're in error, um, but they're Christians. There's going to be Seventh-day Adventists in Christian, or in, in heaven. Uh, on the other hand, there's a whole bunch of Seventh-day Adventists uh, who are uh, involved in a cult. So some yes, some no. Um, you, you know, Jonathan, the, the, the man who uh, I've ever talked to, uh, in fact, two of them that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, who are the uh, most likely to brand Adventists as a cult, uh, both of them were former Adventists. Um, both of them are now, well, one of them just retired a pastor uh, in North Texas, and the other one is a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, um, getting out of the cult, they say, sort of unlocked them and gave them the freedom. And they, they learned to fall in love with Jesus. So while coming out of the religion, they would say it was a cult. I might be a little more charitable. Some are cults and some aren't. 
So I hope that helps. There's plenty of information out there, Jonathan, about Seventh-day Adventists, but it's certainly not something that we want to focus on. Uh, last question. We've got two minutes. Mike says, what should the focus of our youth groups be? It seems like we focus on outreach and missions almost completely. Um, Mike, the focus on, on a youth group ought to be the same focus in the adult group on Jesus. Our focus is on Jesus. If, if, if your youth group is focusing on anything other than Jesus, there will be no outreach. There might be a weekend trip. But remember, Jesus is our faith. He's the subject of our faith. He's the goal of our faith. He's the power behind our faith. So if you're a youth group leader, and that seems to be what you're saying here, um, find out if your kids know the Bible. Do they know the Bible stories? Can you, can you say, tell me about Abraham? What's remarkable about him? Can you tell me about King David? Can you tell me about Joseph or Daniel? And the focus of your youth group needs to be informing those kids about him. And he's revealed to us in the word. You know, Mike, I've said this before. We've got a little mini revival going on among our junior high kids here at Calvary Chapel. It's one of the most wonderful things in the world to watch. They're excited about the word. And they didn't get excited because there's outreach. They got excited because they got introduced to Jesus. Well, the phones are quiet today, but I hope the program was informative for you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.